electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Dom. Hi, everybody. Tesla, Apple, Netflix, Microsoft, Chipotle, Amazon, Facebook. Sound familiar? They're all the names hitting all-time highs nearly every day. Tesla is now at 45% in five sessions. This can't be sustainable, or can it? We are going to debate that. Plus, the social media giants are taking a stand in Hong Kong. But are they on a collision course with the world's biggest consumer market, China? We're going to look at how this could impact their bottom lines. And cruise lines banding together, cold is hot in real estate, and the $500 million man. It's all ahead on Rapid Fire today. But we do begin with the markets, and Bob Bassani has some numbers for us. Bob? And on, this is very typical, Kelly. On days when the market's a little weaker, very similar pattern. That is, cyclical stocks tend to underperform. Tech gets relative outperformance, and defensive do a little bit better. What am I talking about? Well, if you take a look here, transportation stocks, bank stocks have been weak today, energy stocks. These are all classic cyclical names, a little bit weaker. Tech's been doing a little bit better overall. Uh, we still get Microsoft and still get Amazon doing relatively well. Uh, Staples also uh, outperforming. There you see the relative performance there. Walmart, by the way, they're loving that Walmart announcement. Walmart Plus is what they're announcing here. That's going to launch later this month. Same day deliveries, discounts on fuel, early access to product deals. This is essentially a competitor to Amazon Prime. Walmart's been a great performer this year. It's up about 5%. Uh, that's pretty good news in a market where we're down overall on the year. But it's still mega cap stocks, folks. Don't kid yourself. New highs on, on Apple, new highs on, on uh, Microsoft, essentially, here. And you see this outperformance day after day. Only Amazon is down slightly, but it was up earlier in the day. Not good for the banks, though. Still just awful. Wells Fargo looks awful. It's below its March lows. One of the worst performers in the S&P this year. And even the regional banks like Fifth Third, they're down to $13, $14 billion in market crap market cap. Goldman Sachs is a relative outperformer on the year, doing a little bit better, but still down today. Just look at the S&P versus the bank ETF today. And you see S&P is down 2% for the year. Look at that. The bank's down 30%, more than 30% on the year. Need a little better news here, guys, uh, for the banks, but it's tough to find right now. Guys, back to you. All right, Bob. Thank you, sir. Bob Bassani. So how are investors supposed to make sense of a market where names like Tesla, who isn't even expected to be profitable this quarter, is on its fifth straight day of all-time highs and having a mega run? What should investors do when the list of highs sounds like a broken record? And what does it mean for the staying power of the whole recovery rally? Let's bring in Bill Smead. He's chief investment officer for Smead Capital Management. And Komal Kumar is president of Kumar Global Strategies. It's great to have you both. And Bill, I'll start with you. This seems like a natural place for a value you got to pour cold water on everything. Well, uh, you know, you have to remember the market can stay insane longer than you can stay solvent. So we're, we're long only investors. And during times like this, you must be guided by what Charlie Munger says. He says, envy's a lousy sin because it's no fun. Uh, so, so I'm not going to envy the people that own Tesla and own Netflix and own Amazon. Uh, what we're going to try to do is to be set up in things that we think will do extremely well. 
By the way, Kelly, as a reference point, the extreme in valuation was in late 99 and early 2000, the bank stocks were incredibly depressed <laughs> then also in relation to Cisco, Microsoft, and Intel. And we took a look, just used Wells Fargo as a reference point. Wells Fargo went from 19 to 26 uh, in 00 to 02 during a huge decline in the market. It went up starting from a very depressed level. Yeah, so you think maybe we're on, you know, on the cusp of, of something like that. But Sri, let me bring you in because the, the macro story, I think, is getting confusing to people. So you have, by some counts, some of the worst coronavirus numbers that we've seen, especially I think it was ShopperTrack who said spending is down the most yet year on year uh, in their survey. You know, that all sounds like we should be experiencing a market like we did back in March, but instead we keep climbing to new highs. I mean, yes, the tech trend kind of benefits from stay at home. Uh, but what do you think is going on here in terms of the overall economy? Kelly, good to be back on your program. And I think the macro picture to me is a lot clearer than some people have explained, namely that you haven't got out of the deep hole yet. You're going to have very likely a secondary wave of the virus. Nobody is talking about a vaccine until at least early 2021 when it can be effectively administered all of those say to me that in the second half of the year, you have a significant leg down for the equity market. So as for what is happening with Tesla and other stocks, I don't look at specific stocks, Kelly, but it reminds me a lot of the second half of the 1990s when with an Alan Greenspan Fed suggesting to you that you would have a Greenspan put the dot-com boom went on and people said earnings don't matter, valuations don't matter. And then we ended up with the dot-com bust and the recession of 2001. So it is a matter of time. There is a lag between the time you perceive it to be overvalued and the time at which the stocks actually take a hit. It's but with the S&P 500 anywhere from 20 to 2 to 24 times future earnings, I think we are reaching a range where even the Fed cannot support the market for too long. And I was going to say, it's interesting that you both are in agreement about this period being analogous to the late 90s. But, uh, Shri, it seems like you're a little bit more cautious on the overall economy, than, Bill, than maybe you are. Um, could you explain where you think we're going uh, macro-wise, what your view is about the stock market's valuation overall? Uh, go ahead, of Bill. Sorry, go ahead. So, so Kelly, the... It's so interesting the way most of the media spins the current information. So, for example, uh, I, I'm from the state of Washington, and then I also uh, spend a lot of time and, and now have a headquarters in, in Phoenix, Arizona. So I'm watching both of those. Uh, state of Washington was a hot spot originally uh, and, and has had an uptick lately, but nothing spectacular compared to before. And Arizona kind of became a hot spot. Well, and Florida, California, and Texas. Well, in Florida, the governor just came out and said the average person being tested positive is 33 years old. In, in the state of Washington, 1% of the, of the deaths, or 14 people below 40, have died. 1%. Of two and a half, uh, 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 one percent of the deaths, and that's of two and a half million people. 
you, you, you have more chance of winning the lottery in Washington than you do of dying of COVID under 40. So, so the media loves to prey on the most negative statistic involved. And right now that is cases of positive tests. And then they go, yeah. So, so in our opinion, the economy will recover over the next 18 months and you will never get a better price on economically sensitive stuff than today or the next three or four months if we continue going crazy on the misery stocks. And that would be the beneficiaries like Apple and Amazon and, and, and Netflix. They are the misery stocks. The, 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 they love those stocks because they prey on the misery. Hmm. So you're saying you think this is the time for people to buy stuff that's much more industrial, cyclical materials, that sort of thing, all the kind of unloved. And I know Pfizer, Discovery and American Express are some of your top picks. Um, but yeah. it, Shri, let me bring you in for some kind of reaction to that, because you're not in Bill. I'm not saying Bill's a V-shaped guy, but he's clearly you know, more optimistic about the economy moving through this. You're a little bit more cautious. Why do you think this is going to be a more drawn out period where you see the 10 year yield going back below the previous lows? Uh, we're talking about less than half a percent of rise in the price of gold to over two thousand dollars an ounce. Kelly, first of all, I don't see a V-shaped recovery, I think. At best, you're going to have a U-shaped recovery with the bottom being in the second half of 2000, uh, 2020. So you, you are not yet anywhere close to the bottom. That is one reason why I think it is too early to rush into optimism as far as the stocks are concerned. Look further. When you're looking at what the, the, you have an election-related risk, November 3rd is a crucial date. And President Trump is said by various polls to be not only uh, trailing on a nationwide basis, but also in some crucial swing states. The market has no uh, idea what it will be to have a Democratic president, and especially if you have a Democratic Senate as well, and you have all of the Senate, the House, and the presidency being in Democratic hands. One way to look at it is to say that when November 3rd comes, the markets will take a big drop. Or you say you anticipate that the move is coming and you prepare for it right now. I think 2021 will take, assuming a Biden administration, it is going to take a lot of effort to correct the excesses we have in the current administration. We have spent too much on companies, too little on individuals. But as they do that, those measures are going to be beneficial for the long term, okay. but they are going to be very negative for the equity market in at least the first half of 2021. So you're definitely in the, the camp that sees election risk. Gentlemen, we will leave it there. Some areas of agreement, some areas of disagreement. Shri Kumar, Bill Smead, uh, that makes for an interesting chat. We appreciate it. Thank you. Let's get to some big news on the coronavirus front now. It's for Novavax and Regeneron, both getting big checks under the government's Operation Warp Speed program. That's to accelerate access to vaccines and to treatments. Look at shares of Novavax up 36 percent on this news today. Meg Terrell is here with all the latest. Meg. 
Hi, Kelly. Well, in the span of one hour this morning, the U.S. government announced more than $2 billion in grants to these two companies, uh, one focused on a vaccine and the other to scale up a drug for COVID-19. Let's start with Novavax. The award there is the largest they've awarded yet under Operation Warp Speed, $1.6 billion to support taking the vaccine through late-stage clinical trials, including, if all goes well in the earlier studies, a 30,000-participant Phase three that would start in the fall. Uh, also, the funds will be used to scale up manufacturing uh, and supply of the vaccine with the goal of 100 million doses being available starting in late 2020, if all goes well. Now, this vaccine just started human trials in May in Australia, so we need to see those results uh, before we even get this far down the road. But this is the largest award so far under Operation Warp Speed. The previous largest was $1.2 billion for AstraZeneca in May. They've also awarded almost half a billion dollars each to J&J and Moderna and smaller amounts for Sanofi and for Merck. Uh, Now, for Regeneron, it's $450 million that's being awarded here in a contract to help scale up uh, manufacturing, to supply and manufacture their antibody drug that we were talking about earlier this week that has already started late-stage clinical trials. They say initial doses could be ready by the end of the summer if these trials go well. This is a drug that's being tested both for prevention and for treatment. Uh, Different doses would be available for each of those because you need more of the drug for treatment than for prevention. Uh, but Regeneron saying that under this contract, the government has said the initial lots that it's funding here would be provided at no cost uh, to patients who need this drug. Again, Kelly, if all goes well through these clinical trials. But those data we should be getting by the end of the summer. Well, Meg, one question. It's interesting to see that chart that shows kind of who's gotten their funding and when. Should we read anything into the fact that companies like Moderna didn't get more funding this time around or that their amount wasn't larger? I mean, that award was made over two months ago. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, That was made early before uh, the human trials really had much data. um, So I don't know what we should read into the timing um, and how much companies need um, and how much is, you know, involved in purchasing doses. You know, so we might see more uh, more sort of awards coming from the government as they get closer to that part of this process. Yeah, but you can understand why investors in Novavax are certainly excited at, at how big of a check that is. Meg, we appreciate it. Thank you as always. Meg Trell with our coronavirus update today. Coming up, social media giants are making bold moves in Hong Kong in response to China's new security laws there. We're going to look at the impact this could have on their bottom lines. Plus, it's the question on every parent and employer's mind. Will kids be going back to school in the fall? We're going to speak with the teachers union about what needs to happen for them to return. Stay with us. This is... The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back. President Trump is scheduled to hold a meeting this afternoon on how to safely reopen schools. It's something educators across the country are trying to figure out. And we're getting some new insight into what teachers say needs to happen. Elon Moy is here with more on that. Elon? Well, Kelly, we got an early and exclusive look at how teachers feel about returning to the classroom in the fall. The American Federation of Teachers surveyed its members and found that two-thirds believe that restrictions on social distancing are being relaxed too quickly, and that's speeding the spread of the virus. So when you look ahead to next school year, a plurality of K-12 teachers, 42 percent, and a majority of higher education teachers say that they support a hybrid model for the classroom, something that combines both in-person instruction and virtual learning. However, both groups say that they would prefer 100% online versus 100% in person, even though teachers overwhelmingly acknowledge that distance learning is just not as effective as being there in the classroom with the kids. So, Kelly, what we're seeing is that how to reopen the schools is becoming politically charged. President Trump tweeting that schools must reopen this fall. But meanwhile, the AFT finding that his approval ratings are falling among their members. Back over to you. Elon, stay with us. Let's talk a little bit more about this now. Bring in Randy Weingarten. She's president of the American Federation of Teachers. Randy, it's, it's good to have you here. And as Elon <laughs> mentioned, your own teachers acknowledge that remote learning has been a failure and really want students in the classroom. But right. what would it take? You know, what, what would you tell a parent who says, how do I get my kid to safely go to school every day of the school week. Is that possible? It's not possible. But what the the other survey um, document that was really important in this survey, sorry, is that when you say to both parents and teachers, what about using the kind of CDC guidelines of physical distancing and masks to make sure that everybody is safe, as well as actually you know, fighting against community spread like New York has done so successfully. When you see that, 76% of teachers say they're in for um, going to school because teachers want to teach kids. They don't want to deal with President Trump's political agenda. You know, we have been dealing with this since April. We put our report out about how to reopen schools sure. two so months before the pediatricians. And but all of a sudden, because, you know, Biden was at an NEA conference, now President Trump is rushing to come up with guidance. But today. here's my question, going back to the original one, which you answered succinctly. I said, is there any way that parents can send their kids to school every day of the school week in the fall? And you said no. I mean, so, not five days a week. Right. So let's, because but let's talk about what those options are. They're going to ripple through the entire economy. So what are parents supposed to do if their kids are going to be home either a couple of days a week or half of a day? I mean, isn't can so we the, use outside learning? Is there any other way? Can you use the hybrid yes. model to get them to spend more time in school safely? So this is why we think that unless we can actually have double the number of teachers and double the number of spaces, what we have been told by the health practitioners here and abroad is that you need about six feet of physical distancing. That means that half the, that you have basically 50% capacity in schools. And ultimately, that's what bars are doing. That's what offices are doing. And that's what schools have to do. And the um, states that understand this are starting to plan for it this way. But that's why we actually need money from the federal government for the you know, for the ventilation, for the um, for the PPE, for all of these kinds of things. But what I'm saying is that teachers who have been who know that that remote doesn't work have really want to help their kids and really want kids to be engaged 
in school. Yeah. So we've been trying to figure out how to make it work. The, the people who are problematic here are the um, are are the administration who's done actually nothing about this. And now as we're getting closer and closer to the plan, to time school is 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 starting um, now they're trying to pass the buck. Let me bring but in e I don't Elon yeah. Moy, uh, Randy, for a, for a question here. Elon. Yeah, Randy, you mentioned the CDC guidelines, but there's also been a lot of attention paid to the recommendations from the American Association of Pediatricians, who are now saying that three feet of social distancing is an acceptable compromise for students in schools. Is that something that's an acceptable compromise for teachers? Um, the only, so this, the pediatricians have gotten that from the WHO, and the WHO will also tell you that you have to actually really reduce community spread, which is um, completely, and, and you have to really have masks that are being worn by kids. We haven't seen that guidance other than the WHO anywhere else in the world. And in fact, what's happened in the world that's, that's, that's gone back to school is that they have really reduced community spread, completely contrary to what's going on in the United States, you know, in places like Texas and in Florida. And they started off really slowly with young kids to see what was happening. So there's, you know, so we've talked to the pediatricians last night. Um, they are concerned that their guidance is being used to say three feet is a max, not a minimum. And what we're saying is that if you do six feet, then you'll actually get to three feet. The real issue is how to make sure that kids or teachers are not aerosiling. And right. I'm sure I didn't say that word. Right. No, but the, spraying the, the particles. Absolutely. Spraying Randy, particles, let me ask you one final question, issue. though, which goes back to Elon's point. It does make a difference if it's three feet or six feet, because we all know how regulation works. You know, if it's six feet, they say exactly you can have right. 10 people. If it's three, you can have 20. I mean, the math does change. If it's three feet, maybe you can get ki more kids in the school for more hours of the school day. I mean, doesn't there have to be what, some effort to make sure that, especially if they're not at huge risk themselves, that we're not overcorrecting uh, here? But, but what we don't know is we don't know. Um, so this is what's interesting. All of a sudden, um, the six feet rule, which has been important for bars, for office buildings, for hospitals, for all of this, we are now actually easing it for kids. This is the issue. We don't know what really is safe for kids or for teachers. What we do know was that the six feet rule and mass really worked for childcare for essential workers during, um, during the months of March and April. So the teachers of this country, you can see it from that chart, they want to go back to school. Yeah. They know that it's important for kids. We just want to make sure that we do it safely. And that is why we have been fighting for the safety considerations as well as the money since April. Randy Weingarten, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Elon Moy, thank you very much as well for bringing that to us. We appreciate it. Coming up, Texas COVID cases are spiking, and now the state's backtracking on some of its reopening plans. The owner of 11 Texas restaurants is here to share his concerns, including consumer lawsuits. Plus, cruise companies are banding together to face off with the CDC. Their stocks have been hit hard this year, down more than 60% across the board. We're going to hear from the CEOs of Royal Caribbean and Norwegian next on The Exchange. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. 
Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses. Welcome back to The Exchange and take a look at what's going on across the markets. We're close to the lows, trending lower. Uh, the Dow is down about 205 points right now. About 239 was the low. S&P lower as well. NASDAQ is eking out a small gain. Isn't this the theme of late? Technology continuing to outperform. Uh, some of the banner big tech names continue their strong Run. Tech is actually the fourth best sector today, technically speaking. But remember, consumer staples and communication services have a lot of those names in them. Four are in the green today. What does that leave? Six or seven in the red? You guys can do the math. Financials are down 1.7%, uh, continuing to just the, their uh, string, I should say, of weakness that Bob Bassani was highlighting earlier as well. Let's get to Sue Herrera. She's here for our CNBC News Update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. More than four dozen Florida hospitals have now reached capacity in their intensive care units as COVID-19 cases continue to surge. The data comes less than 24 hours after Governor Ron DeSantis said the state's outbreak had, quote, stabilized. Nearly half of all the FBI's counterintelligence cases are now related to China, with a new case being opened roughly every 10 hours. Director Christopher Wray says China is, quote, the greatest long-term threat to America's intellectual property and economic vitality. Experts from the World Health Organization will travel to China this weekend to research the origins of COVID-19 and to study how it was initially transmitted from animals to humans. And TikTokers beware. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says the popular short-form video platform may soon be banned in the U.S., along with other Chinese social media apps due to data privacy concerns. For more on that controversy surrounding TikTok, you can head to CNBC. Com. A lot of teenagers will be unhappy about that. That's the news update this hour. Kelly, back to you. Snapchat shares are up on that potential. Exactly. Uh, we're going to dig much more into this in a bit, Sue. Thank you very much, mm -hmm. Sue Herrera. COVID cases continue to spike in Texas one week after Governor Abbott reduced restaurant capacity back to 50 percent. The state reporting another 8,200 cases, up more than 4 percent from the previous day. The seven-day average for cases is now surging more than 25 percent. Since the reopening, testing has climbed more than six-fold, while new cases have risen more than sevenfold. The Texas Restaurant Association projects 30 percent of restaurants, 30 percent won't make it through this pandemic. And that sounds low uh, based on different studies that we've heard lately. Joining me now for more is Kyle Noonan, the owner and CEO of Free Range Concepts. They operate 11 restaurants in the state that combine eating experiences with things like a dog park, a bowling alley and live music. Sounds like a great time, Kyle, uh, normally speaking, but a, but a terrible place to be doing business right now. So tell us what it's been like. 
Yeah, I think we can all agree that 2020 has been a mess so far. But um, and like you said, uh, my concepts generally are a good time. Um, now, we do in Texas right now, currently, restaurants are allowed to operate at 50 percent capacity indoor dining and then outdoor spaces. Um, as long as you're practicing social, the six feet social distancing, there's no limit. Um, so in my case, uh, my my restaurants are large outdoor spaces sometimes exceeding 25,000 square feet in patio. So I'm uniquely positioned, but the restaurant industry as a whole has been obviously, and everybody knows this, it's been decimated by, by the, the limitations. And, 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 and we obviously, as restaurant operators, we understand why we have to be cautious and why we have to social distance and why we can't open at full capacity. Sure. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we aren't disappointed by it at the same time, because obviously... Uh, there's tons of jobs that are being affected and tons of livelihoods. I mean, people save their whole life to open their, their restaurant and you're watching your family life savings kind of in some capacities uh, go up in flames. No, it's so sad. Every day we flip through the papers, there's another story about a restaurant closing down. You drive through town, you drive down the highway and you can see it. It's, uh, you know, you had $50 million of annual revenue that went to zero overnight. So let's talk about the impact on your workers. Uh, you did apply for and get a PPP loan. Um, are, are you able to then keep people on payroll? Um, what's that experience been like and what's going to happen if you can't have you know, kind of normal operating capacity in the next six to nine months here? Sure. Well, obviously, no industry and no business model works at 50 percent of, of total revenue capacity. So long term, uh, we've got to get back to uh, to doing what we do, uh, which is serving our communities. We did get PPP money, which allowed us to keep our thousand team members employed this whole time, which has been great. Uh, but from a business standpoint, uh, that doesn't really help us because we still have rent. We still have utilities. We still have taxes. We still have all the other expenses. And if you don't have any revenue coming in, it doesn't work. And so you- we're really hoping that, that something comes uh, legislatively to help the restaurant industry in particular, because this industry has been really the only industry that's been targeted for some reason. And and, and, I, and I think we know why, but it's been the only industry that's been targeted um, across the board uh, and been forced to shut down. And we haven't seen that since really prohibition. No, it's an interesting point. And you're talking about legislative solutions here. One of the other concerns that you have and a lot of business owners have is what happens if I'm operating under the rules? Somebody gets coronavirus, turns around and sues me for it. Um, You know, that that I think is is a, a big question hanging over the economy. Sure. Well, I think that it goes a step beyond that. And we're already seeing commercials on TV. Have you been affected by Corona or, you know, um, so there's these class action lawsuits that are trying to form against businesses. And frankly, whether you got uh, contracted coronavirus in a, in any business, it's hard to prove that. So um, really, these are just class action lawsuits targeting businesses, um, which we need. And this is not just the restaurant industry. Businesses need some sort of protection from this because uh, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of times where uh, where you might have a, an unscrupulous lawyer that's looking to make a buck at the expense of business owners. Yeah, Kyle, we appreciate you coming on to talk about it, share your concerns. Your house is lovely. I can see why your restaurants are successful. <laughs> hey, thank you.
very much. I appreciate you having me on, Kelly. Yeah, best of luck, and, and do keep us posted. Kyle Noonan is the owner and CEO of Free Rage Concepts down in Texas. Ahead, Facebook meeting with civil rights leaders at the top of the hour as a 1,000 brands have paused or stopped advertising on the site. We'll look at what's at stake. And cold is hot. If you're in the warehouse business, we'll dig into that, plus more issues for the MLB and the $500 million man. It's all coming up right after this on Rapid Fire. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple of stories that should be on your radar today. It is Rapid Fire, and here to break down the headlines are Seema Modi, Eric Chemi, and Julia Borston today. Let's start with Julia. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg are set to have a face-to-face meeting with civil rights leaders at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Zuckerberg and Sandberg uh, will address demands for this, of the Stop Hate for Profit boycott, which has grown from a few companies here and there, to nearly 1,000 brands, including major players like Unilever, Coca-Cola, and Verizon. Julia, what should we expect? Well, look, I think they're going to be talking about the demands of the organizers of this boycott. And Facebook, I think, is really going to be talking about the progress Mm -hmm. that's already made. Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg have both both made it very clear that they are not just folding to pressure, that they've been on top of these issues of trying to really minimize hate and and racism on the platform for a while. And they're sort of reiterating that they're not going to do anything because of pressure. They're not going to be making changes because of financial pressure, but they want to do the right thing. So I think the issue is what they think is the right thing is not yet enough for these boycotting companies and the organizers. So we'll see what comes out of it in a couple hours. Seema, is it going to matter? You know, can Facebook kind of wait this out and, and let this blow over or not? Well, I think that's the key question. I mean, talk at the end of the day is cheap. And to Julia, Julia's point, I think there are a lot of people out there who want to see action. That statement from Sheryl Sandberg, appreciated by many and talking down comments around hate. But is it a little too late to the game? This boycott started two weeks ago. Yeah, no, I, we'll see what happens. Julia, we'll check back in with you, of course, for that reporting uh, as we get it. Let's talk in the meantime about what's going on in the cruise industry. Rival cruise giants Royal Caribbean and Norwegian are teaming up to face the CDC. They're launching a joint task force called Healthy Sail to address COVID health concerns. It's uh, always interesting to t- see two competitors uh, do a joint interview. Here's what the two CEOs had to say exclusively to Ms. Zima earlier today. There will be changes. But I think the changes won't undermine the fundamental fact that people are buying a cruise for a marvelous experience. And we understand we need to deliver that marvelous experience. They'll be back. Uh, they're back now. Uh, they're, they're, they're wanting to cruise with us. And so uh, we believe that the long-term viability of this business is intact. And we're going through a rough patch with this virus. But we're confident that this rough patch will not last forever. Seema, it seems like they're kind of getting frustrated and saying, look, we want we, we are tired of just waiting and waiting and waiting. We want to come up with right this, these regulations to have a plan to start sailing. Yeah, and we're tired, too, as journalists following these companies. It's been four months since the cruise lines were halted in mid-March, and yet still no concrete recommendations on what cruise lines will look like in this post-pandemic era. That's why they created this panel and brought two rivals, Norwegian and Royal, together uh, to create this panel of medical experts that can help guide them in these discussions with the CDC. But, Kelly, it's a really tricky task. They can update their safety protocols, 
but also they need to preserve that cruise experience and create that level of entertainment and not discourage customers from booking a cruise. It is somewhat analogous to the challenge that sports venues are facing, Eric. Kelly, I mean, especially in the cruise industry, what we've heard from these companies, they say no one can really remember when you talk about word of mouth, which cruise company you were on, which cruise company had a problem. These industries, they go up and down together. It's not so much one company versus the other. It's the industry together. In a way, they're not so much competitors. They're competing against all the other entertainment choices that are out there, similar to sports, Kelly. Absolutely. Uh, Julie, what were you going to say? No, I just think it's really remarkable, Kelly, if you think about what it means to be on a cruise. Remember a couple months ago when everyone was sick on those cruises and they were all sort of quarantined together. And to think about what the future of cruises are going to look like. You know, those CEOs who SEMA interviewed, they talked about maybe you have an unlimited buffet, but you don't let people serve themselves. Or maybe instead of going to a crowded port of call, you have the only visits to to private islands. So this is an industry that's really going to have to transform not just the logistics of how it works behind the scenes, but also expectations of consumers. Yeah, look, the casinos got rid of the buffet, Seema. I mean, if there's no buffet on a cruise, why would anybody go? Yeah, that's that's the key question there. I mean, buffets are certainly a big draw for those who really love cruising. But there's casino night, there's ziplining. There are other activities, of course, that travelers partake in when you get on a cruise. Key thing I would also point out, 2021 book. According to Norwegian CEO Frank Del Rio, he said are strong, which tells you a lot about how much trust customers are putting in, the, in these cruise lines. No, to, I believe that. I hear people making future plans. All right, we'll move on. Now to real estate. One high growth area of that market lately has been warehouses, and now it's hotter or rather colder than ever. Let's bring in Diana Olick for more. Diana, cold is hot. What's going on? <laughs> Cold is hot. Like you said, look, to keep up with the new demand from online grocery buying and direct-to-consumer pharmaceuticals, the U.S. needs up to 100 million more square feet of cold storage warehouse space, and that's according to CBRE. That's roughly 6,100 new warehouses, like this one being developed by Scout Capital outside Philadelphia. New cold storage needs to be much closer into cities. Why? Because we all need everything right now. Now, while demand from restaurants has fallen off sharply, demand from supermarkets, from online orders, way up. The average age of a cold storage warehouse is 34 years old, so the whole sector needs a facelift with more automation. Now, there is just one dedicated cold storage REIT, that's AmeriCold, but other big storage companies like Prologis do have the ability for tenants to do a box within a box that's cold storage in a regular warehouse space. This is going to be big, big demand over the next couple months and years. Kelly? I'm just looking at everybody else for reaction. You know, you're going to get Seema's take on the, on the cold storage REIT <laughs> play. Well, I will say, just listening to Diana's report, it's interesting how AmeriCold, the only real estate investment trust that specializes in cold storage, the stock has done really nothing if you look at the year-to-date performance uh, and even the 12-month performance of the stock. But also, cold storage extends beyond warehouses. It's scanners, it's technology, it's the containers that that produce or pharmaceuticals travel in. Uh, So there seems to be an opportunity here beyond just the real estate. Kelly, remember when... The temperatures dictated where you put servers. Remember these big tech oh, yeah. companies were going way up to the Arctic Circle because they wanted those cold temperatures for the servers. It reminds me of that, so maybe all of a sudden cold storage will take off. There's one right now. Maybe all of a sudden in a year or two from now there'll be a couple more. Yeah, once there's an ETF, you know, we have, you know, you know the trend is over. You know, the easy money's been made. Diana, thank you. We appreciate it. Diana Olick with the latest there. Finally, what is the sports world telling us about COVID? Will there ever be sports again? More players across baseball especially are opting out of the 2020 season entirely as frustration over testing and COVID grow. 
And, Eric, I think it's interesting this is a template, you know, because baseball is kind of first, then basketball, and I, I suppose then football. Baseball is interesting because they're not using a bubble. These teams will be in their home facilities and traveling to all these road games. It will look like a normal baseball season. So a lot of players are opting out, and a lot of teams, they haven't even been able to practice. They don't even have the results of their tests. So you've got a league-wide issue here. A lot of star players, they're not even sure the league's going to make it to opening day. Julia? I think this is going to be a real opportunity to use technology. The most cutting-edge technology needs to be deployed across all of these different leagues, whether it's the rings that are being tested out to monitor temperatures or whether it's um, contact tracing. But I do think that this is an opportunity to figure out what the future of sports looks like, and especially if people start coming back into stadiums, how you make sure that people are transacting, doing everything without any uh, touching. So really using mobile payments yeah. for everything. Um, and I think it could really be at the leading edge of, te- of tech development for live events. we got to go, but Eric, if, if- if by some chance there's not an NFL season, does Patrick Mahomes still get paid? <laughs> it depends. I'll have to negotiate that. I mean, he's got a $500 million contract. There's a lot of ifs in that $500 million, so we'll see if he actually makes that over the next 10 years. But that's going to be a whole other thing. If there's no NFL, and we'll have a lot of free time on Sundays. But there's no way. Don't you think, given everything that's going on, we're still going to have sports or not? What, what's the scuttlebutt Dr. right now? Dr. Fauci said the worst sport you could create in terms of contact and this whole COVID thing is football. So if we can't get these sports off the ground, forget about football. All right, fair enough. They're just trying to save some money on his big contract. Yeah. <laughs> Seema Modi, Eric Chemi, Julia Borston, thank you guys. That's it for Rapid Fire today. Still ahead, you know Zoom and Netflix is part of the stay-at-home trade, but take a look at this mystery stock. It's an under-the-radar at-home name, and it's up more than 80% so far this year. We'll reveal the company and the other self-gainers in this space right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. When we talk about the stay-at-home trade, the same stocks keep coming up over and over. Netflix, Zoom, Peloton, most recently Fastly. But there are names out there that fit the mold but may not be on your radar. RBC, in fact, out with its list of at-home plays. And here's a look at some of the lesser talked-about names. VMware is a pick. RBC points to the company's carbon black acquisition as a path for market share gains. They're up about 70% from their 52-week lows. And two cybersecurity plays the firm says should also benefit are CrowdStrike, which is more than doubled this year and is more than tripled from its 52-week low, and Okta, OKTA, which handles remote logins for companies. That stock is up 135% from its yearly low. RBC has an outperform on all three names. For more on their list, you can head to cnbc.com pro. Now, we may be in a pandemic, but it hasn't stopped states from battling each other for business and jobs. Scott Cohn joins us now with a closer look at that. Scott? Hi, Kelly. Uh, longtime viewers will know that on this day in a normal year, we would be unveiling our list of America's top states for business. Well, CNBC has decided against doing that this year. But make no mistake, states are still battling one another. And this year it has taken on a whole new dimension. Even as some states were still shutting down in the spring, Massachusetts was already planning how to open up. What's going to happen when we get through this hospital crisis and how are we going to get back to work safely? Bain Capital co-chair Stephen Paliuka led the effort by the Massachusetts High Technology Council to produce a 72-page recovery framework back in April, bringing together business, science, and government, covering everything from testing and treatment to who goes back to work when. We felt that if you didn't take a holistic, systemic approach, 
uh, you work and solve this. Across the country, states are stepping up, some drawing on past experience, like New York after 9-11 and Louisiana after Katrina. You saw states really snap to in, in action and be pretty proactive. Now, every state has some sort of program to retain its businesses through the pandemic. But site selection consultant Tom Stringer says states and companies are also starting to look ahead with talk of moving manufacturing back to the U.S. Site selection is in full swing again. We're a leading indicator, so we typically see people either spending money or retracting from spending money probably 12 to 18 months before it hits the general economy. So things are starting to move again. Stringer says this is all very preliminary. We obviously don't know what else the pandemic is going to throw at us, but it just shows that in this battle between the states, there is no rest for the weary. Kelly? No, there is not. Somehow I'm not surprised. Scott, thank you so much. It's a great report. We appreciate it. Scott Cohn. Still ahead, TikTok is pulling its app out of Hong Kong due to a new security law out of Beijing. It's just the latest social media company to take a stand against the Chinese government. And we'll discuss the future of tech's ties to China next. Welcome back. A slew of tech companies have suspended processing government access requests for user data in Hong Kong after China imposed a new security law on the city. They include Facebook, Twitter and Google. And the short form video app TikTok, which is owned by China based ByteDance, has taken it a step further, says it plans to pull out of Hong Kong completely as a result of the new rule. For more on the future of tech in Hong Kong and China, I'm joined by Neelay Patel, editor in chief at The Verge and a CNBC contributor and our own John Fortin. It's great to have you both here. John, the really confusing thing about this is is TikTok pulling out of Hong Kong to protest a Chinese law, even though it's owned by China? Yes, uh, though TikTok uh, is sort of an outside of China operation. There's a similar app that operates inside China. The stakes are incredibly large here, though, Kelly. And I think that because we've never had something like TikTok in this app era that is made by a Chinese company and sort of becomes a global phenomenon, particularly here in the U.S. And I think TikTok is trying now to make an argument that it's sort of the new digital Hong Kong. Like it, it, it's Chinese, but it's global. It's it's uh, in based in China, but not beholden to China. And it's not clear whether China is really going to allow that. They don't seem to be allowing it for actual Hong Kong. And, and then there's the question, then d- does TikTok sort of have to pull a Taiwan? And, and, and split off in, in the digital realm from China, and what will the implications be of that? Right, because Neelay, to me, it seems like a little bit of intentional posturing to say, look, we're so not owned by China, we're going to pull out of Hong Kong over their new laws, if to signal to the rest of the world, you're okay using us, America. You know, hey, Pompeo, you don't have to ban us. Yeah, you know, to John's point, uh, ByteDance owns another incredibly popular app called Douyin, uh, which is basically TikTok. Uh, it is used by uh, people in the Chinese mainland. The CEO of ByteDance says, look, we have a lot of data users in Hong Kong. They can use that. It'll be fine. We're going to separate TikTok out uh, in Western countries, particularly the United States. Uh, They can be comfortable that this was designed not to share data back to China. TikTok has a CEO, ex-Disney executive Kevin Meyer, Mm -hmm. who's now the CEO of TikTok. There is a Western face, a well-known Western face to this brand. The question is whether they can actually maintain 
that sort of virtualized separation, or they have to really pull it apart and say, okay, now this is a country that is not headquartered in China. It just has roots to this Chinese company. That's yeah. a big question for them. And the TikTok issue is, again, interesting just because it is so popular and because it's Chinese-owned. But let's talk about some of the other big tech companies, Nile, Google, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Zoom, Telegram, those who are pausing or suspending cooperation with Hong Kong. Um, you know, how many of those have already, you know, are not operating in China? And what happens to those who are doing so and, and are going to have to face the Chinese going back to them and saying, well, then fine, you can't operate in China. In China. You can't. Yeah, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head there. The question is whether Hong Kong is now part of China. And I think these companies are really wrestling with that. The United States government doesn't really have a, a strong position on it right now. So they're kind of taking matters into their own hands. Uh, I pulled some numbers on, on the big three that you mentioned. Uh, in the last six months of 2019, Google had 48 data requests in Hong Kong. Facebook had 241. There is not that same data for Twitter. But in the first half of 2019, Twitter only had three data requests in Hong Kong. The question is whether, under Chinese control with this new national security law, those numbers are set to skyrocket. And I think these companies are saying, before that happens, we're going to take a breath and decide whether we want to keep doing business in this market, which is now effectively part of China. We're already not in China. The loss of business here is not a big deal. Mm -hmm. And we could just not be in this fight. Right. So most of these companies are already not operating in China. So this doesn't represent a new threat necessarily. Um, John, we, we should pivot to talk about uh, the potential news today about Mike Pompeo saying that they would consider banning TikTok here in the U.S. What should we watch for in terms of next steps on that front? Well, I think we're on the verge potentially of a digital Cold War. Where, where you've got the uh, Chinese way of doing networks and apps and surveillance and government authority, and then you've got perhaps a, a Western way. Though in the weird kind of subplot here, the U.S. seems to want the, the kinds uh, of access to those things that the Chinese already have. And, and I think w whether it's Huawei and the U.K. now distancing itself from Huawei, or, or whether it is TikTok, this popular consumer app based in China that's still trying to be global, the decisions that get made here could really have broad-reaching uh, implications for, for the next decade. Absolutely. And Snapshares, by the way, American company, up more than 7% uh, on these headlines today. John and Neelay, thank you guys. Our own John Ford and Neelay Patel of The Verge. And that does it for us on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.